Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Bill Gibson, who is a professor of economics at the University of Vermont. His main research interest is building and simulating macroeconomic models for developing countries. A second area of interest is NASA, space policy, and the aerospace industry. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Uh, I would like to point out, because I don't get a chance to do this very much, that I have a degree, an undergraduate degree in aerospace engineering from Georgia Tech. Uh, <laughs> nobody's impressed with that except perhaps <laughs> no so yeah uh, that, that's good bill because i i used to be an engineer myself and, i know uh, i know <laughs> and i did some work for nasa too a long time ago right you um, told me <laughs> uh, but uh, so I, I want to start with this short essay that you have can the free market save the space program and um in that essay, toward the end, um, it says here, uh, the, in betting taxpayer money on the nascent commercial space flight industry's promises of an orbiting free, uh, orbiting free market waiting to be born, the agency has shown that, agencies NASA here, shown that it hasn't fully cut loose from its old uh, gambler's impulses. Uh, the belief that the next paradigm of manned space exploration, the thing that will make all of this worthwhile, is just around the corner. Um, I, I know that you have a lot of interest in this area, Bill. So do you want to set the context uh, for sort of where the, the space industry is? I know that a lot of private companies have come in. NASA is now buying uh, services. And so sort of a free market has started to happen. So, so what's the status quo? Okay, I can, I can certainly do that. And uh, I'm prepared to. Uh, but I thought that it might be a little bit better to start uh, with the economic perspective on, on what, what I'm going to say. Otherwise, I'm not totally sure that the listeners would really understand exactly what, what I'm saying and why I'm saying. Sure. I think if we gave a little bit of background 
to the economic way of thinking and the appraisal of the of what you just said, the problem that you just laid out, I think it might be a little bit clearer. So let me just say what the economic way of thinking is in a nutshell. Basically, economics looks at the, an assembly of agents, which we call an, an economy, and we look at the well-being of those agents. And the, the critical point here that I want to make with you is that the well-being is evaluated according to how the agents in the system evaluate it themselves. So for economists to impose on any kind of problem, his or her own value judgments would be considered to be a rookie error. It would just be considered to be wrong in economics. It's not what we do. That's not true in other social sciences. Prescription, that is normative comments are made throughout the rest. And the economists often make normative comment as well or analysis as well. But as they say in sports, yes. winning is not everything. Wanting to win is everything. So I could make an analogy to economics to say that being objective is not everything, but wanting to be objective is. So we can talk about the market mechanics, but uh, before we get there, I, I know that you have thought a lot about these things, but I want to start at a slightly higher level, and that is um, why should we explore space in your view? Well, now I'm ready to tell you the answer to that question. Thank you for persevering putting up with that that long introduction. But, you know, we can give you credit for Econ 1 because we take a whole semester explaining those concepts in, in Econ 101. And so if you, if you got it, that's great. Okay, here's the reason. Because the public, why should we? Well, there are two basic reasons. The things that human beings value, what are they? Okay, there's energy, there are minerals, okay, there are metals, raw materials, and finally real estate. All of those things are available in space at virtually infinite quantities. Now, remember from your mathematical background that infinity is not a number. It's important to point that out because many people think, oh, yeah, infinity. I know that's a number. No, it's not. All it says is that there's no limit to the process of acquiring those goods in space. There's just no, no limit. You can always get more of them. Now, therefore, space exploration is going to relieve resource constraints on Earth. That's number one. Number two, if we get into problems on Earth of conflict versus co cooperation, which I think is increasingly unlikely, uh, when Gerard O'Neill, the physicist at Princeton, was first devising his theory of space exploration, we were in the middle of nuclear conflict, potential ICBMs coming from the Soviet Union. We had we had no problem agreeing that, that let's, let's, let's defend ourselves against that. And so what his argument was, was that humans could destroy themselves. Now, we could also destroy ourselves with global warming. We could also destroy ourselves with a number of other methods, including a pandemic. And wouldn't it be nice to have some place to go? And wouldn't it be nice to have people already there welcoming us when all of a sudden the earth became un? inhabitable. Now, I'm not arguing that that would be a good thing. I'm just saying to become a multi-planet species is definitely an objective that has great public good benefits for the whole of, of, of the agents in the economy. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so the, the, the problem, obviously, I, I don't have strong opinions on this, uh, Bill, but I, I want to uh, I want to uh, say this so that we can debate about it. You know, the, 
the, the first part of your uh, analysis where you say that there are a large amount of resources outside in space uh, is a sufficient reason for space exploration is difficult for me to see because there's a cost benefit question, right? Um, the, the fact that, you know, there are a lot of oranges in India wouldn't be sufficient for me to move to India. No. Right? Um, and so, so that has to be, that has to be put in the context of cost benefit. The other um, sort of a discontinuity uh, answer, which is if something bad happens to it, happens to us, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be ICBM. It could be a meteor hit. It Absolutely. Could be, you know, things, right? Absolutely. Uh, this provides a sort of an option uh, for survival. Now, that has to be put in the context of uh, the current threats uh, that we face, right? Yes. So I sometimes think of the earth. It's, easy, it's easiest to terraform the earth than Mars, <laughs> right? Well, the, uh, the Earth is already terraformed. terraformed. Sorry? The Earth is already terraformed, so we don't... It's not. <laughs> we are losing it oh, okay. uh, in some okay. sense. Right? Okay, so, I see where you're going. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so the, the question that remains to be, you know, a risk question, which is, suppose we are on a path of losing what we got, and we have a resource constraint, and there are two investment options in front of us, uh, whether that is to mend the earth or go to Mars and make it, make it a beautiful place. Um, it, it really needs to be thought through from a, I would say, risk and benefit perspective. I couldn't agree more. And the way we normally think about that, I mean, at this, you're talking the language here of economics when you mentioned cost-benefit analysis. And risk, of course, is a subcategory of that because what we usually do to factor in risk in cost-benefit analysis is compute expected values of costs and expected values of, of benefits. And so I couldn't agree more. So here is the way in which we would have to make the argument about why go to space. Yeah. If a resource gets to be scarce, okay, what will happen in the economic way of thinking is that its price will rise. If on the other hand, in a different sector of the economy, launch costs are falling down to the point at which we get to a what's called a crossing price, where it's just as cheap to get an asteroid from space to, to get uh, rare earth metals as it is to dig even deeper into the surface of the earth to get them. If that's the case, then from an economic point of view, we're indifferent to the source of the resource. That is, they have the same cost and the same benefit. The benefit is determined by who's going to use the rare earth metals and the, and the, and, and the cost, of course, is the cost of obtaining them. So what we're doing when we do when we're engaged in space exploration is we're giving the people the incentive to lower the costs on the in this crossing price analogy to obtain those resources and then as we continue to utilize those resources on earth they become increasingly scarce the price system as long as governments don't come in and try to control the prices which is a whole nother podcast we could get into if you wanted to <laughs> I'm sure Mark Law talked about that when you interviewed him. Yeah. Uh, and so um, 
if we if, if as long as government doesn't get in the way of these price signals, we will be aware of when it's necessary to go to space to get specific resources. Right now, I can't say that it absolutely is, but it doesn't mean that at some margin it isn't worth developing the technology to to push ahead. Now, that said, one of the most important resources that we could have is leisure. We're bored with a certain number of hours under under our control that we're on the earth and people love according to the way they evaluate their lives to engage in leisure leisure activities yeah. include going to space as a spa as a, a space tourist so if we're going to argue that someone wants to do that then we can't really say that resources are adequately uh allocated in, a in an efficient way if somehow that person is blocked now Assuming that person has has the income to pay the cost, then there's absolutely nothing in the economic way of thinking that says that that person shouldn't enjoy leisure, enjoying leisure from the pers perspective of his or her orbital hotel. Yeah, I can you know I can clearly see benefits, um, but where I struggle is you know I would think about this as sort of a portfolio management problem. Um, the world has a limited set of resources, and the question remains to be how to best deploy those resources into the various investment choices the world has. Uh, in that context, and I, I think um, I think it's either in the book review or in the essay, Bill, you talk about, you, you touch on sort of the human space exploration and, and robotics. And uh, here again, I, I want to throw this out for debate. Um, it is, uh, humans are pretty clumsy <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. And uh, sending human is 10 to 15 times more expensive than sending a machine. Uh, now, obviously there are some disadvantages. Uh, the machine is not creative enough like a human. So th there, is, there is a design question for NASA and other organizations and and that again comes down to you know sort of the cost benefit question all of these are appear to be somewhat squishy to me bill well let me let me say that i have to disagree with you gil because yeah. i think that if you if you if you take seriously the distinction between private and public goods you have a very clear future for what nasa ought to be doing and you have a very clear future for what the the private sector ought to be doing the private sector needs to produce private goods. The public sector. Now, the analogy here that we get to public and private goods and the distinction between the government and the private sector is much like the body. The body has is made up of organs and of connective tissue. And what economists often say is that the private sector is specialized in a specific activity, somewhat like the kidney or the liver or the heart or the brain, whereas the connective tissue, the skeleton, the, cir the circulatory system, the skin, all the things that are there in the body that are not specialized is the province of the, is in a sense of public good, the province of the public sector. Consequently, any kind of research activity would qualify as a public good. However, taking tourists to space would be clearly a private good. Now, I know some people enjoy watching astronauts. I want one of my best friends. In fact, I have to leave uh, according to the time I told you, because we're having dinner with our, some of our best friends, one of which is an astronaut. 
And she often looks at the world from the perspective of really it's too dangerous to send uh, private citizens up in space. This is, I don't want to mischaracterize, I'm not going to identify her, but I don't want to mischaracterize her view in case she listens to this podcast. But um, it, that a lot, of, a lot of astronauts, we know quite a few astronauts, a lot of them will say, you know, I'm not really too sure about this idea of private citizens in space because, you know, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. It's really dangerous and oh, just maybe it's not such a good idea. Well, yeah, but I don't think that you're going to be able to justify sending humans to space because uh, on, on a public good point of view, because a public good would say people are willing to pay money to watch other people go to space. Is that really true? Well, I don't know. I don't know how many people will go to Disney World or an amusement park and pay to see other people go on the rides. Oh, maybe grandparents will. <laughs> but most of the time, we like to do it ourselves. And so the reason why, I mean, this really infuriates when, I, when the economic way of thinking produces this kind of conclusion in the face of an astronaut. Most of the time when we talk to astronauts and we say, look, you guys are like the the mountain climbers that are setting the ropes for the rest of us. And let me tell you something, if there's no rest of us, you don't even need to set those ropes because the only reason to send a human to space, at least from the point of view of the average person in the economy, is so that they can take those risks, figure out how to make it safer, just like the first people that flew an aircraft and allow the rest of us to go there more cheaply and more uh, and, and, and more safely. And if you can't do that, well, then there's kind of no point in sending you guys out there. Now, that's from the perspective of the economic way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I have, you know, no, uh, no issues with, uh, like you say, a private industry developing, um, doing research and development, creating products. If space tourism is a product they're offering and there are there is a demand for that product, um, you know, that's how markets work. Right. But if all these activities require subsidies uh, by a public entity, then it's a different question because the subsidies is a resource allocation question for society. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And so, you know, when uh, SpaceX and others... Um, say this is the f best thing for humanity to do. I beg to disagree. <laughs> there are a lot of good things for humanity to, to do today. Uh, this is one of the good things, but it's not necessarily the, the best thing. It's clearly the best thing for SpaceX and Orbital uh, because it's an economic question. Well, let me let me respond. Uh, let it, me respond yeah. to that in two ways. And again, I'm going to go back to my public good and private good analysis that economics gives us. It's difficult to argue that when you go after this podcast, maybe out to grocery store to grab a bite to eat or something, get in your car, that you're being subsidized by the roads that you drive on. I think it's just a tough argument to make. On the other hand, if you got a check in the mail from the government that said, hey, we know that you're, you're suffering, here's $1,500. That would pretty much be unequivocal that that was a subsidy. So when it comes down to making goods more cheaply from a private point of view, 
then they should be taking into account the full cost, given the background of the existence of the public infrastructure, given that background, which is, remember, non-excludable in the sense that anybody can use the roads, anybody can use use space, anybody can do this if, if, if they want to. OK, yeah. if you look yeah. at it that way, then the the act of of providing the connective tissue to the space industry or any other can't really be considered a subsidy. It's not really a sub. It does not. Public goods do not destroy or do not undermine the efficient allocation of resources. So I would say I would say, yes, you're 100 percent right. This if this market is a, is to stand on its own. It needs to stand on its own. But that doesn't mean that it can't take advantage of research that goes on in the public sector. 50% of what we do in the universities is research. 50% of the research done in the United States is done by universities. So uh, agricultural extension, this is bringing to farmers the information about better crops. And, 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 and you know, NASA came out of NACA. Uh, actually, it's mostly said NACA, which is the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics, which never got into operations itself. It provided yeah. airfoil designs. It provided prop and cowling designs for the fledgling uh, aircraft industry, but never really came head to head competing with uh, the aircraft industry in the sense of providing its own airplanes to 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 crowd into that market. That's the proper way from the economics point of view to think about subsidies, who's getting subsidized and who is not. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense, um, sense, Bill. I mean, you know, there is an infrastructure, there is R&D, that is public good that anybody can use. Uh, we do that in pharmaceuticals, Absolutely. we do that in all the industries, right? So that is that is not a problem, but the problem and again, this is not a problem. I'm just uh, throwing sure. this out uh, out there for discussion. Uh, the, the question is whether there is some sort of a strategic intent on the part of the space administration um, to, let's say, to colonize Mars, uh, to send um, humans to space at some frequency and so on, then uh, those things need to be um, really debated, right? Because it, it is not very clear uh, from, as you say, from an economic perspective, that is the best use of tax dollars, right? Uh, it might be, but but it has to be proven in some way. Well, I, could, I couldn't um, agree more with you there, yeah. that uh, if you're looking at, for example, a private company going to Mars to, or the moon, to go into the regolith of the moon and harvest um, um, helium-3 for, uh, for use in, 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 in fusion reactors, and that's a private good, then the government has absolutely no role there. That, you're absolutely correct. Going and colonizing, I mean, in, the, in centuries past, governments thought it was a public good to colonize uh, other countries. And that's, that's highly debatable. And probably completely wrong. So I, you know, I think it's very difficult to argue that 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 the acquisition of of real estate uh, by by means of the state that doesn't that's not part of the country is is a uh, that's very difficult to argue. So 
let me just say that you're right. I couldn't agree more that it is we would have to have a big debate about whether that was a good idea or not if there were going to be public funds. But Elon Musk is not looking for public funds to colonize Mars. He is, he's looking for, for, for public goods, the connective tissue that gives infrastructure. Pad 39A and 39B, for example, is part of the infrastructure of, of, the, of the Florida space complex. That's like bridges, canals, internet, and other things. So I think it's I think it's a pretty rough thing to say, not a fair thing to say that he's that if they go to Mars, they will use 39B to, to probably lift off or A. There's two of them, two pads, ones that the Apollo uh, uh, astronauts took off from. I don't think that's really subsidizing. I think that would be fine, but I don't think that the government needs to try to colonize Mars as an act. Of, of of the government, it would be wrong. I mean, yeah. we've certainly opposed that if China tried to do it, and I don't think the United States ought to try to do it either. But I certainly think that if it's in the it's if it's a if it's a revealed preference of Elon Musk, that government should not stand in 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 the way of an individual doing that. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, subsidies sometimes difficult to see. For example, electric vehicles in the US um, got a tremendous amount of subsidies. Uh, the public doesn't see it <laughs> uh, clearly. And there are private companies who have a lot of profits out of um, tax dollar subsidies. Um, and similarly, if there are no subsidies in space program, that is good. But I would argue that if you have contracts with NASA, pre-commitments of certain purchases into the future, that's a forward-looking subsidy. You you, uh, you wouldn't you would not as a private company take that investment without that. I'm hard, I'm having a hard time seeing how that's a subsidy. Okay, let's um, let's let's just let's just any other any good any public good that the government decides to per, to to call into existence, defense. Okay, that might that's a, that's yeah. a classic example. Communication structures. Uh, all the infrastructure that we talked about, any of these things that are non-excludable and non-rival, okay, that the government calls into existence, are allocated through the political process. If we see, hey, you're spending too much money on bridges, you've got bridges to nowhere, then the people that are in Congress and in the in the government that allocated those funds to those bridges get punished. They don't do it as efficiently. They're not punished as efficiently as if they were in the private sector and they would be punished by the price system. But you have to kind of say that with public good allocation, you do have some squishiness. However, let's just yeah. say, because I want to come back to your point. You got a good point, a very good point. Let's just say, okay, that there was a public good. And let's just forget about its identity. Let's just say it's there. It's public good X. And so the, 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 the electorate is happy that that public good is present. They're happy that it's there. Like, for example, the vaccine. Now, it's not true for everybody, yeah. but let's just say that the, 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 the people are happy. Okay. Now, let's just say the public good was 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 paid for by the government, but some individual provided it. And let's go to the extreme here, Gil. Let's just say that that individual got all of the money for that public good. Now. If you go to the New York Times and look at Kara Swishers and some of these people that write about this stuff, just how confusing 
they are with respect to to what I'm going to say next. It's really pretty amazing. Okay, so they will say that because the Bennett, that the the payment for the public good was not properly distributed among among women, minorities, workers, everybody else in the community, that in fact that public good should not have been produced. That 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 that's a distortion. But no economist would agree with that because look what's already happened. The benefits are not just on the supply side. The benefits are also on the demand side. Everybody in the economy that appreciated the presence of that public good and therefore reelected the people that called it into existence are better off. If they weren't, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have supported the, uh, the, the provision of the public good in the first place. So to ignore that fact and focus on how the supply side distributes the payment for that public good is a real bastardization of economic logic. No economist would use that. I mean, you could look at every single private good that's, that's, that's produced in the economy and say, okay, now who got the payment for this? Was it, was it the workers? Was it the, was it capital? Was it uh, somebody else, some interest group? And then you could break that down instead of have a list of ingredients, have a list of beneficiaries that benefited from the sale of this public good. But that would that would really undermine the whole way of thinking about the economy, because when you go, when you go and buy something in a store, a grocery store, you put down five dollars to buy uh, any any commodity. You, what you're saying is that you want that commodity more than you want the five dollars. What the supply side does with that five dollars is not in your you don't care because, you know, your decision was there. I want the good more than I want the money. Otherwise, you wouldn't go in the store in the first place. If you want to keep the money, this wouldn't go in. Yeah. So idea it, of well-being. It, it, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's a complex question. So, you know, just like you have to separate investment and financing decisions, you have to separate the question of subsidies and whether the investment leads to public good. So right. let me let me That's talk good. about That's both good. of them quickly. Go ahead. Uh, the first one, if a company does not take up project A because it does not have a net present value on its own, but will take up that project if they get forward commitments from a government entity, then that project becomes net present value positive only because of forward-looking commitments, and that is exactly no, no, sir. It is not. It depends upon how. It depends upon what the benefit of that good that is that the government is demanding from that company. The second part. I, I'm just. I'm just taking the first part. Whether that is a good public good decision is the second part. The first part is there is there is money transfer from the public to that company to produce but, something. In this case, it's a forward-looking, forward-looking commitment. But Gil, that doesn't make any sense because what if some private individual came up and look, whatever good we're talking about, that let's say it cost one million dollars, and that turned the investment from net present value negative to net present value positive. That's the that's the problem we're working on, right? What yeah. difference does it make? It's a private it's fine. What difference does it make? Let me just ask you this question in your in this way of thinking. What difference does it make whether that demand came from the public sector or private individuals? Why would you call it a subsidy? So you don't see a difference between a private. 
you don't see a difference between a private equity firm investing into a project and government investing into a project. You don't see a difference. No, I not in terms of the economic logic of it, because from the firm's point of view, it's a rise in demand for their product, converting the 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 net present value from negative to positive. Who? But there's a difference from a taxpayer. Well, that's a different story. If the taxpayers say this is a bridge to nowhere, well, then the taxpayers are going to get upset. But the problem with public goods is that they aren't allocated with the same alacrity as the as private goods are. That is, public goods get allocated in a squishier way because we have to go through this political process. One person, one vote. We've got to go through this political process to allocate them. So you could be absolutely right that the public sector individuals, this is all goes back to public choice theory, and we have a Nobel Prize on that from Buchanan uh, for, uh, in the 1980s, but the idea there is that if, the, if there is a mismatch between the aggregated preferences of the individuals in the society and the government, well, then you have to, something has to be done. And you would be absolutely right. That would be a misallocation of resources. But to call it a subsidy, let's back away from that a little bit, because that's emotive language to some extent for many people. It would be better to say that what is, what is going on there is that the preference aggregation problem was, has not been solved. The government has taken its liberties to, to create a public good that people don't really want. And so therefore, there's clearly a misallocation of resources. I have forgot to mention one thing that was important, which is in economic theory, people own the government. The government does not own the people. Yeah, I'm just abstracting the problem, Bill. <laughs> I'm saying if, if a company is, is unable to take up a project without the government, you can call it whatever you like, but there is a transfer of money from taxpayers to that company. Now, you're saying, well, that company is creating public right. good. Everybody will benefit right. from it. And so why do you, you know, why do you What's talk about it? Just give them more money, <laughs> right? And, and that might be the good decision. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's a bad decision, Bill. I'm saying the public has to understand that whoever is, you know, doing the Mars projects, is getting forward commitments from a government agency funded by taxpayer Well, dollars. you know, that's probably going to stop, Gil. That's probably going to stop because we have, um, we have, in the history of space exploration, we have democratic governments coming in on, from the democratic, with capital D there, coming in and just stopping projects. Let me just tell you one little story yeah. that's absolutely amazing. This is Clinton's. Back in the 1990s, we had a we had something called the Delta Clipper. Are you familiar with that project by any chance? Uh, okay, I know. This uh, is a really interesting um, spacecraft. It was the first to take off and then land back with propulsive landing. Now you know that that Elon Musk is a big proponent of of propulsive landing. Uh, he does that because he knows that there's no runways on the moon and there's no runways yeah. on Mars. So getting entry, descent and landing uh, on, on either Mars and the moon is gonna be extremely difficult without propulsive landing. 
Well, we had propulsive landing in the early 1990s with the, with the so-called DCX, the Delta Clipper <laughs> Experimental. Okay, this was run by NASA. Now, on about the fifth or sixth, I can't remember, but after several successful flights, someone forgot to connect a hydraulic line to one of these of the legs that the Delta Clipper landed on. So it came back down to Earth, okay? It it then deployed three of the four legs and then fell over. Yeah. And what was NASA's response? <laughs> Cancel the program. Who did it? The Democrats, <laughs> Bill Clinton. Why did they do that? Because when you have politics in this mix, which is very corrosive to the whole idea of space exploration, the politics, I'm, I, I sense that you would be very upset if we had a big subsidy to a private sector firm to go and colonize Mars. And I would share that. Most of the time, yeah. this is what the article that you referenced earlier in the very beginning of our, our talk, Can the Free Market Save the save the space program. Most of the time, it's only the private sector that knows what's doing, what's worth doing in space. Ultimately, the private sector will have to determine what's worth doing in space, just like they did with aviation and virtually every other field. The government can't have its own preferences. In fact, in mathematical economics, the government has no utility function. We don't normally give the government a, a, a utility function. We say the government's there just to create public goods. So, you can, so I, I think that we would be completely in agreement. On the other hand, if the public good was to stop the Nazis from taking over Western Europe in, in, 1940, in the 1940s, well, that's certainly a public good. And their people cheered the Normandy invasion. They said, yeah, let's, let's, we're not only going to give our taxpayer dollars, we're going to give our lives to stop, the, stop these people from doing that. And if you have a preference aggregation that says, we need to stop, we need to stop the Nazis, we need to stop the Russians from raining down nuclear weapons on us. If you have that preference aggregation problem solved, then the public goods can take off. But I agree with you, we in no sense have the preference aggregation problem. The only solved. The only thing that I would add to what you said is let's not dis, let's not uh, let's not confuse the margin versus the average. Adam Smith once argued that it doesn't make any sense in economics that diamonds would be so expensive and water would be so cheap when water is so much more important to human to human survivability than diamonds are. Well, that's a famous problem yeah. in almost all textbooks in economics. We say, well, yeah, that's true on average. So if you say that there is a better way of spending public funds to relieve poverty, to clean up our cities, to improve our, our infrastructure, and then say, I'm sorry, space exploration, whether it's public good or not, I don't care, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait. We're going to uh, tackle these other problems. What you're implicitly arguing there is at the margin, okay, it's better to spend a marginal dollar on these projects, these social justice projects, for example, than space exploration. If that's true, no, you're I, right. Yeah. But let's not I'm not saying that though. Uh, yeah, all I'm saying, Bill, is that uh, it is a portfolio management problem. And uh, there are a lot of investment choices society has. And um, like you say, we, we have to hold the government accountable for some sort of economic rationale 
for investment choices, right? We, we cannot, like you said, normatively say space is a beautiful place, let's go explore. Um, it doesn't quite follow because you have a, a very strong resource constraint at the portfolio level. And so it is the government's uh, responsibility to show the investments that they make have economic value to society and has the highest economic value. And that's to exactly so, right. You, know, you are just you are just recounting. Yeah. You are just reprising, Gil, in, in, in an eloquent way, exactly what's going on right now with NASA and the private sector. NASA is recognizing the validity of the argument that you just made. It started. It started back in the 1990s, actually, not actually uh, earlier than that, in which we had um, we, we 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 started with the with the commercial uh, space program, and NASA decided that it was going to focus more on on research, development, and questions that the private sector would never try to address, which is what was the origin of the universe and so forth. And then leave the um, the supply of the International Space Station to the private sector. So, to NASA's great credit, it's recognizing the validity of the argument you just made and saying to us, "Look, if you want to go to space, become an internet billionaire and do it. We'll help you. We'll provide the public goods. We'll help you with the research, but we're not going to subsidize you." Yeah. And that is, I think, that is the exact change that we're going through right now. Lori Garver, remember that from the article? Lori yeah. Garver was the one who started this whole thing. She is despised by some people and beloved by others because she's seen as undermining the whole public sector attitude. There is an attitude. You don't share it. And, and many people other, other than yourself don't share it, which is to say that space ought to be controlled by governments. Private sector has no role. There are people that make that argument all the time. Many astronauts do that, that have really thought through the problem. Yeah. But we're making the opposite argument. And NASA yeah. has bought that opposite argument. Bridenstein, before he was, he left, said, look, you know, Elon Musk, I was just looking at a discussion with Elon Musk and, and Jim Bridenstine, the director of NASA, before Bill Nelson was appointed um, uh, uh, by Biden. And, and, and Elon Musk looked over and said, he was asked the question, who decides whether space tourism is going to, a, a tourist can go to space? Elon Musk looked directly at NASA, yeah. uh, at Bridenstine and said, that's NASA's role. But then Bridenstine, Bridenstine said something amazing. You can go on the internet and watch this interview if you want. Um, it's on the Everyday Astronaut yeah. uh, link. Bridenstine said, that's for the present. That's not for the future. It's amazing, huh? Yeah, we're in an amazing era of space exploration, and just like aircraft, it's going to follow pretty much that. And NASA has really got to be given a, a m enormous credit for seeing that they couldn't ever ultimately decide what's worth doing in space. Yeah, I fully agree with that, Bill. Um, I think there's some really exciting stuff happening. Um, I really like this idea of private sector getting involved. Uh, we just need, I believe, we just need a higher level of transparency uh, as to how decisions are made, how economics are flowing uh, in the ecosystem. Um, because at the end of the day, the, the excess profits 
would be garnered by some of the players in the market. Um, and and so, so the public has to really understand how those decisions are made, right? And, and I think that will be to NASA's benefit. Uh, it will be to the government's benefit to actually make it more I couldn't agree more. But I would just want to leave you with this one idea that was actually originated by, uh, by Kenneth Arrow in the 1960s when I think it was at the University of Chicago, in which he made the, he made the point, yeah. which is still true today, that an efficient allocation of resources and the distribution, that is, when we say efficient, we mean the best allocation of resources evaluated by people in the economy as they themselves evaluate uh, their, their, their own well-being. An efficient allocation of resources and the distribution of income that comes from the supply of those resources, the ownership, private ownership, are completely separable. And in fact, he made the argument that an economy can have whatever distribution it wants of income as long as it relies on lump sum transfers from individuals in the economy one to the other. And that will not disturb the price system reflecting the relative scarcities of the underlying resources, that these problems are separable. You've got politics that will make the distribution of income more egalitarian, if that's what you want. And you've got then you've got this public and private good story mixed with general equilibrium in the economy from the economist's point of view that will give you the efficient allocation. Fully agree, Bill. It's, it's just like in corporate finance, investment and financing decisions That's are a good separate point. decisions. It's That's a good point. Thing here. But I don't think we should fall into the trap of playing the role of the outside observer, which is to stand back from the economy and say, oh, you know, everybody would be better off if they just did this. And if NASA just did that and if the private sector just did that, because we can't re there's no one that really has that role. It's we're a bunch of people yeah. in the economy, a bunch of agents. And, you know, nothing makes this more clear than agent based modeling. When I started teaching that back in the in the in the in the early 2000s to my class, I changed my view of the way economics worked completely. And I see my students doing the same thing. If you model the world as a bunch of agents looking out for their own well-being and then you ask what kind of allocation of resources ends up as a result with with subsidies, yeah. without with taxes, without with lump sum transfers, without a lot of things become so much clearer, so much more clear. And there, but I'm afraid you might have to lose your idea of corporate finance, though, because if we were in control, as the corporate finance offices of the big corporations are of the fate of the corporations, that's one thing. But we can't we can't elect ourselves as the head of the resource allocation problem for the economy as a whole, even though we can do it for our own firms. Right, right. Excellent, Bill. Thanks so much for spending time. Okay, with Bill. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.